we are embarking on our summer series on Proverbs, as you see, looking into a search for wisdom. I think of wisdom, I think of different kinds of wisdom. Sometimes we call street smarts and book smarts. I'm reminded of the story that I heard Tony Evans once tell about a Boy Scout who was on a plane with a pilot, a pastor, and a computer whiz. And of course, there was trouble on the plane, and the plane started to go down. They realized that they're going to have to put on parachutes and jump. Now, the problem was is that there were only three parachutes, and there were four people. So the pilot came and said, well, look, hey, I, I have a wife and four kids. I need a parachute. So he took the parachute and jumped. And the computer whiz said, uh, well, I've got all of this knowledge in the world that the world desperately needs, and I can't have it die with me, so I, I need a parachute. So the computer whiz took a parachute, and he jumped. Well, the pastor looked at the little boy, and he said, well, look, I've lived a long, full life, and, and, I'm just a, uh, and you're just a young man. You take the last parachute, and I'll go down with the plane. And it was a great act of courage and heroism. And the little boy looked at the pastor and said, Pastor, don't worry about it. The brilliant computer whiz just took my backpack and jumped out of the plane. <laughs> so the idea is that some people are book smart, and then there are some people that are street smart. Now, before that, uh, before we go any further in the message, just a reminder, we have children's worship, and if uh, the children are, I think, third grade and below, they can go to children's worship if you want to send them down there now. We also have nursery of available. Uh, if you have small children, um, you can go down there. It's just right down the stairs to your left and they will be glad to check him in. But children's worship, they'll take them down there, and they will hear some of the message in, uh, on their level. So uh, as the children are being dismissed, I do want to really jump into this topic and talk about there are these different categories, street smart, book smart, right? Those are the c- categories we use. We all know somebody who is really street smart, right? Someone, and we mean by that is someone that can really manage, know how to deal with people, in different situations, and they're not very naive, they're, they're pretty wise in how they interact with people. And then there are those who are, are very book smart, and what that usually means is, is that there are those who are uh, smart, and they know how to uh, look at a book, and take a test, and, and listen to a lecture, and tell it back to the teacher. And we see this often, and sometimes we see people are, are really book smart, but they, don't, they lack a lot of street smarts, and there are those who are street smart and lack a lot of book smart. And very, very rarely do you find people that can do both. Now, I'm proposing a a different category. Yes, there's street smarts. Yes, there's book smarts. But I want to look at the book of Proverbs and introduce a new category called God smart. It's God smarts, where we understand what it means to live according to God's word and apply his word into our lives. Now, what I love about the scripture is that it speaks to the entirety of our human condition. There is nothing outside of the light of scripture. It shines on every facet of our lives, whether it is speaking of salvation or whether it is about our relationships in marriage or with our children or at our workplace, how we even do business, how we are to to live and how we are to speak. Um, The Bible talks a great deal about all of these things. So what we're going to be doing this summer is we're going to go through this book, not verse by verse. We're going to be skipping throughout the book. But for the remainder of the summer, we'll be highlighting these different passages in this wonderful and ancient book. But today we're going to look at these very uh, first section that introduces the book, and it, we're going to use it as a launching pad into all of God's wisdom. And we're going to see what God's smarts is, 
how we can get it, what will happen if we live by it, what are the consequences if we reject it, and what the point of it all is. Now today, I hope to look and break down the purpose and theme of Proverbs, and then I want to give us some tips and tools to interpret this book for ourselves. Then I want to explore the areas where this book will challenge us in life. And then finally today, I hope to give us the steps we must take to put into practice this wonderful book. But before we go any further, let's pause and ask for God's blessing on our message time. Holy Father, we know that you are the author of life, that you have made us, that you have fashioned us, and fashioned us to live for you, to know you, to experience you, to glorify your name. Lord, you have given us your word as guidance for life, to show us how we are to live, how we are to love, how we are to learn, and how we might pursue you and experience the blessing of knowing you and have true peace with God, peace with one another, and peace with ourselves. Lord, I pray that you guide our hearts, guide our thoughts, challenge any thought that has not been taken captive to the name of Christ, that is is wild and uh, apart from you. Lord, I pray that we might rein it in and that we might seek to live according to the truth of your word, that we might experience the blessing of knowing who you are for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, Proverbs... Proverbs, uh, what is a proverb, first of all? It comes from a Hebrew word that means to rule or to govern. These are are little, short, concise statements that display a truth. And usually it conveys a moral truth. And we use these all the time, many that are not even in the Scripture themselves. But there are many different proverbs we use. And I'm going to give you some of them that we have in our, our, um, uh, that we use here in America all the time. First of all, how about this one? See if you can finish it off. Early to bed, early to rise, makes one healthy, wealthy, and wise. Do you know who said that? Benjamin Franklin. He put it in Poor Richard's Almanac, which is really funny. He's also the one who said, the early bird gets the worm. This guy never got up early in his life. (laughs) If you've ever read anything about Benjamin Franklin, um, John Adams writes about him when they were in France together, serving together, and John Adams was raised on Poor Richard's Almanac, and he was always up and early and at the office and ready to go and engage in diplomacy, and Franklin would come stumbling in at noon. After he'd been out on um, inter- interacting with the different Frenchmen at their parties, and he was doing diplomacy just in a different way. But he created many of these proverbs that have made their way into our American consciousness and then influence how we think and live and do. But there are many other ones. For example, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, or a fool and his money are soon parted, a leopard cannot change its spots, or a dog is a man's best friend, a good man is hard to find, or a chain is as strong as its weakest link, all right? Or a rolling stone gathers no moss. See, these are all phrases and and proverbs that we have taken, we've applied into our lives. So they're short, concise statements that we, we can memorize really quickly, and then we apply, and we internalize them, and they help direct how we live, how we think, how we go about our daily lives. 
Now, God's proverbs are infinitely more valuable and applicable. And in fact, we see, just as I mentioned with Franklin, oftentimes he would come up with great statements but didn't believe them. See, with the, the scriptures, we see in the book of Proverbs that these are truths to live by and apply to our everyday lives. Now, let's start off in verse 1 of Proverbs chapter 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Now, Solomon is the author and collector of this book. And, and I say author in that he penned many of them. In fact, we know that he was the wisest man to have ever lived. He was king of Israel. He had, was David, King David's son. He ruled from 971 to 931 B.C., and he was the son of David with Bathsheba. And the story of his wisdom is well known. After he became ruler uh, of, of uh, Israel, God appears to him at a, in a dream when he is sleeping in, in Gibeon. And God says to him, ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon, if you are familiar with his story, says, I would like wisdom to govern your people because I'm a young man and I don't know what I'm doing. And God delights in his request. We see this in 1 Kings chapter 3 and 1 Kings chapter 4. God delights in his request because he didn't ask for money. I mean, think about it. If God would say to you, you can have whatever you want, what would you ask for? I mean, be honest. What, what, what would you want? <laughs> money gold bullion. You know, it's like the whole thing, if you had Aladdin's wishes, what would you wish for? More wishes. That's what I would do. As a kid, I figured that out. But we, we have all these things, and we would ask for, but he asked to rule God's people with diligence, to govern, to lead with integrity, to know what he was doing, and, and to lead with skill. And God delights in that request so much that he, give, he says, because you didn't ask for long life, you didn't ask for riches, you didn't ask for victory over your enemies, I'm going to give you wisdom to govern my people, and I'm going to give you what you didn't ask for. I'm going to give you riches, and I'm going to give you long life. So he gives them these things, and he becomes the wisest man on the face of the earth. And we, we know, according to the scripture, that he spoke about 3,000 proverbs and wrote about 1,005 songs. He made scientific observations, as well as uh, comments and, and uh, insights into matters of biology, zoology, and many different other life situations. He was one very wise man. And we see from this book, is if you look it over, it has 31 chapters, 915 verses, and it has a few different authors. You have King Lemuel, some think is a, is a, a, a metonym for Solomon, um, or the sons of Agur, or some, some material was copied later on after Solomon's reign by Hez King Hezekiah, uh, his dis uh, Solomon's descendants' men, uh, sometime after Solomon's reign. But we see that this it's a collection of statements and moral truths that are, we are meant to apply to our lives. Now, we know that he's the author, but what is the theme of this book? And how can we live this out and get God smart? Well, first of all, it, it requires this. Living out God's Proverbs requires exploring the theme of this book. We need to explore the theme of this book. And what is this book talking about? Because we can't just pick and choose, and it can't just be a buffet of what we want. We have to understand the greater theme of the book. It, it is part of wisdom literature. Now look at verse 2. To know wisdom and instruction 
who understand words of insight. Now, wisdom is simply that, knowing how to live wisely, skillfully. The word for instruction is referring to being disciplined, to learn from someone else teaching us. And then to understand words of insight carries the idea of understanding and perceiving what is real and true. It is interpreting and applying the experiences of others. It's learning from experience, but it's more than that. It's listening to those who know better than you. And if we're to live this out, we need to understand that the book involves guidance for living. The book is about guidance for living. Now today, just as we saw within the, the, uh, the video right before I walked up, it had the, the picture of wisdom, and it's, it's the picture from Google, the website Google. And now we use Google as a verb. Google it, right? We can learn about any information anywhere today, more than in the history of the, er in, of the earth. You want to know something? You can Google it. You want to know when the last time the Cubs won the World Series? I don't even know if Google knows that. It goes back so far. It was 1908. Or the last time they appeared in the World Series. What year was that? 1945. White Sox fans usually know this more than Cubs fans do. Or how about this? Do you, do you want to know how many unreached people there are in India? Out of a population of 1.2 billion, there are 1.1 billion unreached. You can Google it. You can find out. We have more information at our fingertips since the foundation of the world. I mean, we can know what's going on instantaneously across the planet. Used to, it would take days for a letter to get to us. I mean, even in the 20th century, there were, there were periods of time where you could be out in the middle of nowhere and you wouldn't know about a major event going on until days, if not weeks, or even months later. But now we can know seconds as it's happening, live. We have information at our fingertips. The problem that we have is not information, it's interpretation. See, for example, we get all this information, but what do we do with it? What do we do with it? What does all this information mean to us that we have at our disposal? And so we have all this information, and we don't know what to do with it. We're carrying it around going, ah, it's overload. And, it, and we have to be able to interpret it, the information, and use it for application, which hopefully leads to transformation. See, the Bible doesn't just give us information. You can regurgitate facts about God's Word. But if it's not leading to a transformation in your life, then it means nothing. Because the Word of God has to be applied. So we have to understand that it's, it's guidance for living and teaching us how to live in a way that is glorifying to God. Now notice verse 3. To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Now wise dealing is literally wise behavior or how we deal, in essence, uh, with others, and how we have equity, and how we have justice, and, and it's interaction with other individuals. Matter of fact, Billy Graham, the great evangelist, in his uh, devotional time each morning, he would read from the book of Psalms first, because he wanted to know about how to interact with God. And then he would read from the book of Proverbs, because he wanted to know how to interact with man. That's a good way of describing Proverbs. I mean, it's more than that, but it's a good, just a, a, a overview that Psalms helps us really truly to interact with God, and Proverbs helps us to interact with man and how we deal with many different life situations. Now look at verse 4. 
to give prudence to the simple. Now, prudence is acting and showing care with thought for the future. Have you ever someone that, are, are you a person who just makes a decision and you don't care, you don't think about what's going to happen? Next. I mean, here the scripture is saying to think about what choices will, what will be the consequences of your choices now. Where will they lead? To give prudence to the simple, to those who are, the word there actually is naive. You ever know someone naive? Someone that's naive is someone that doesn't know any better. You know, I, we used to love to give uh, my daughter Mariah when she was a, a baby. This is terrible now that I think about it, but it was funny then. We would give her a slice of lemon. Did you ever do that to your kids? And she would shove it in her mouth and her face would go, and then she'd keep eating. It was funny because she didn't know any better. You know, I mean, when I was a kid, I grew up on a farm with my uh, uh, cousins. And um, uh, my, I was the youngest out of the entire family. And we had cattle. And we had an electric fence. And my older cousin would say, let's go by the electric fence. And I was like, okay. So we'd go by and he'd, go, he'd say, well, touch it. And I'm like, I know, I knew I wasn't that stupid. I'm like, I'm not going to touch the electric fence because it's going to shock me. He goes, here, here's what we'll do. I'll hold your hand and I'll touch it. Now, what I didn't realize then is that the person that's holding that person's hand gets it twice as bad as that person. So I'm like thinking I'm safe, grabbing on, and I'm like, I can hear my heartbeat <laughs> as I'm doing this. And, and I, why? Because I was naive right? Naive. And I learned. I mean, many of us have been naive, and we learn from experience, do we not? How many of us have learned from experience in this room what not to do? I think everybody should raise their hand, because we all are learning on what not to do. We all have these ideas about the world, but as experience comes in, we start to see and understand um, and channel that knowledge, because experience is a great buffer to direct us. So it gives prudence to the simple, or, or a thought for the future for those who are naive. Knowledge and discretion to the youth. Helping young people grow. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. So what is all of this saying? It means that this book is going to help us in our growth as a person. In our growth as a person. I think we all want to grow. I mean, it's amazing to me that one of the biggest sections, if you would go to Barnes & Noble, is what? Self-help self-help. We want to we grow. We want to become better and, and different than we are now. And many of us will try to have some change and we might achieve it. I mean, we all want growth, whether that means losing weight. We have all these diets that promise all of these different things. And we have all these quick fix solutions to get us out of debt. And, and we want instant deliverance and we want to be different than we were. But see, the what the Word of God does, especially Proverbs, is it shows us how to live and shows us choices to make. And it's not always deliverance. It's discipline. It's learning to die daily and apply the Word of God to our lives, to increase in learning, to grow, to understand the world. Now, exploring these also takes us to the source of all wisdom, God himself. Look at verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, we have to understand the source of wisdom and where it begins. It begins with our author and our creator. Wisdom has God as its source. 
Now, what does it mean to have a fear of the Lord? Does it mean we're always afraid of God? Does it mean reverence? What does it mean? I think it means health. It's a reverential fear. It's a healthy fear. How can there be a healthy fear? That seems like they're contradictory, but they're not. It's like an electrician. Any electrician will tell you that they have to have a healthy fear of electricity. That when they're working with it, that they, can, they realize that if they forget the power at their, their hands, and then they become sloppy, that they can die. It's the idea of having a healthy fear that I'm going to conduct myself with being very careful of what I'm interacting with, to have a respect for it. But it's even more than that. In fact, as one author writes, reverential fear of the Lord is the prerequisite of knowledge. The term yerah can describe dread. This is the term for the fear of the Lord is in Deuteronomy 129. Or being terrified is Jonah in Jonah 1.10. Or standing in awe in 1 Kings 3.28. Or having reverence, Leviticus 19.3. But with the Lord as its object, the fear of the Lord, Yerah, this fear of the Lord, captures both aspects of shrinking back in fear and of drawing close in awe. It is not a trembling dread that paralyzes action, but neither is it a polite reverence. The fear of the Lord ultimately expresses reverential submission to the Lord's will and thus is characterized or characterizes a true worshiper. In this context, it is the first and controlling principle of knowledge. Elsewhere in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom, the discipline leading to wisdom. It is expressed in hatred of evil, and results in a prolonged life. So let me ask you this. How do you view God? Do you have a reverential awe of Him? I mean, we don't, we don't get awed too much anymore. I mean, we have so many different things in CGI and things we've seen in the movies that we're pretty bored. But when you see, there are certain things that you see, it just causes you to be in awe. One of the things that really makes me stand in awe is when we have a really huge thunderstorm. You ever had, seen one of those? I mean, we've experienced it here when the alarms go off, the sirens go off, and you have to go, and you, I, I have a tendency to, uh, rather than go down to the basement, I send the kids down there, and I like to watch from the window to see just the power that's there, and you realize how small we really are and how powerful God really is. We have a tendency, in, in, in our country especially, we have become accustomed to safety and health, that we don't deal with a lot of problems and tragedies as much as those who are in other parts of the world. And in some ways, we become dull to the things of God. I'm reminded of the story of uh, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a theologian in uh, New England in the 1700s. He's known as the greatest American theologian, to, uh, period. One of the most brilliant men um, that has ever I would say walk the face of the earth from a, from a faith perspective. And he um, was this amazing man of God and theologian, and he was, a, he was a very spirit-filled preacher. And he gave a sermon once. He gave it at his church, actually a couple times. He gave it in his church in Northampton, Massachusetts, and then in Enfield, Connecticut. And on July 8, 1741, he gave this message entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I don't know if you've ever heard this message, but it's probably the most fam- one of the most famous sermons that have ever been spoken, ever, period. And as he, he uh, was farsighted, so when he delivered his message, he would stand behind the pulpit, and he would hold his 
manuscript right up to his face, and he read it word for word in a monotone way. Not very exciting. But as he read, he was so filled with the Spirit of God that it permeated the building. And he was talking about the power of God. And people started responding in, in amazing ways. I want to quote to you a, a, a large swath of that message as he's talking about the very power of God. He's talking about the power of God to send us to hell. Now, we don't talk about hell a lot. Um, it's because it's unpopular today. But hell is very real, and we have to talk about it if we're going to honor God's word and to, to share with people uh, to understand what awaits. But he says this, The observation from the words that I would now insist upon is this. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. By the mere pleasure of God, I mean his sovereign pleasure, his arbitrary will, restrained by no obligation, hindered by no manner of difficulty, any more than if nothing else but God's mere will had in the least degree or in any respect whatsoever any hand in the preservation of wicked men one moment. The truth of this observation may appear by the following consideration. There is no one of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Men's hands cannot be strong when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist him, nor can any deliver out of his hands. He is not only able to cast wicked men into hell, but he can most easily do it. Sometimes an earthly prince meets with a great deal of difficulty to subdue a rebel who has found means to fortify himself and has made himself strong by the numbers of his followers. But it is not so with God. There is no fortress that has any defense from the power of God. Though hand join in hand and vast multitudes of God's enemies combine and associate themselves, they are easily broken in pieces. They are as great as great heaps of light chaff before the whirlwind or large quantities of dry stubble before devouring flames. We find it easy to tread on and crush a worm that we see crawling on the earth, so it is easy for us to cut or singe a slender thread with anything hangs by. Thus easy it is for God, when he pleases, to cast his enemies down to hell. What are we that we should think to stand before him, at whose, re at whose, rebu at whose rebuke the earth trembles, and before him the rocks are thrown down? It's a sobering word. It's a terrifying word. Indeed, those who hate God or hate this type of expression about God because it is indicting them and saying that they are going to hell. And as a matter of fact, all of us are apart from Jesus Christ. And he is showing here the very power of God. And it's his sovereign will, his own pleasure that keeps us from being cast into hell. He is the all-powerful one. And we need to have a healthy and reverential fear as the only true response to one who is so powerful. And as he delivered this message, by the way, men started crying out in the middle of the message saying, what must I do to be saved? People were grabbing onto the pillars of the church because they felt they were going to slide into hell. He was being interrupted time and time again as the Spirit of God came upon that place in such an amazing way that people were terrified because the presence of God showed up. I mean, if we, we don't have that anymore, but if you think about it, I mean, have you ever got woken up in the middle of the night and you're walking around and you hear a sound and it causes your, 
hair on the back of your neck to stand up because you realize something there that you don't know what it is that's more powerful possibly than you. Multiply that by a million times and you're getting an understanding of being in the very presence of Almighty God. Where it causes us to just stand up in fear and awe. Now, God is not only a God of wrath, but he's a God of love. And I give you the understanding of his wrath to understand how powerful he is. He's so powerful that he would give his son to die for us, to enable us to have life in him. Now, I wanted to give a general overview of this passage, but I want to talk more now about the book. I've only skipped through pieces of it, but I want to give us some interpreting tips for this book. Interpreting tips for this grand and wonderful book. See, this book reads a bit differently than other books and for uh, books in the Bible. Many of us, we just read the Bible and we, we think, oh, it's the same for all of it. Remember, the Bible consists of different types of books within it. And each one has a slightly different way to read it. It's the same way that we interact in life. You don't read John Grisham in the same way that you read your DVD instructions. Okay, there's different ways, different genres. You don't read the, the po- uh, poetry of Shakespeare in the same way that you might read another contemporary author like Jeffrey Archer or something along that line. So we have to understand then, to really grasp and apply the truths in this book requires understanding the language and life lessons. Language and life lessons. Now remember, we're reading a book written at a certain period of time during Solomon's era. There are times when Proverbs uses language, expressions, words, or idioms that are unique to that culture. For example, I'm going to throw out some verses. I don't have page numbers, unfortunately, for you to turn to today. Uh, I am staying mainly in the book of Proverbs. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, just try to listen in and follow as I go through this. Like Proverbs chapter 17, verse 8. If you want to turn there with me, uh, you can. Uh, And Proverbs chapter 17, verse 8. Again, Proverbs is... kind of near the middle of your Bible. If you're unfamiliar with it, you can look at the table of contents uh, to familiarize yourself. And in Proverbs 17.8, and I'm giving you an example of how we need to understand the language that is involved, the idioms that are involved to interpret. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 8. A bribe is like a magic stone in the eyes of the one who gives it. Wherever he turns, he prospers. Now, That's probably not a proverb you have heard uh, preached on very regularly. And and it seems to advocate bribery. It appears that way. Bribes, favors, and kickbacks grease the wheels of business and power. But is it right? Of course not. But that's how the world works, right? We see that all the time. At first reading, this proverb seems to commend exactly that, giving a little to get ahead. But we must understand this scripture in relation to others that speak about the same subject. If you flip back a couple of chapters, go to Proverbs 15, 15, 27. Uh, Proverbs 15, 27 says this, Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. Now, at first glance, it seems that it's contradictory, but it's not. When you take them together, the, the Bible is making a general observation of life lesson. People that do give bribes seem to prosper in the long, I mean, in the short period of time. But when you look at it in light of Proverbs 17, 8, we see that you're actually bringing trouble in the long run. So it's talking about, they're using language and expressions and life lessons that it's showing to us that we need to understand about it. There's also the understanding of genre and general truth. General truth, genre. The Proverbs is uh, wisdom literature. 
it reads differently than 1 Corinthians or Romans or Revelation. Each one of these books reads slightly different in how you go about it and how you interpret it. There's not a one-size-fits-all rule for interpreting. We have to consider these things. And it's referring to general truths that are truths in most situations. For example, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. I think many uh, who have been raised in Christian homes or who have children um, are familiar with this verse. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, does that mean that your child will never rebel? Does that mean your child is guaranteed to be a follower of Jesus? Is it a promise in that regard? Or is it referring to a general truth that if you teach and model the Christian life and following Jesus to your children, that they will follow? Yes. Because I know of some people that have taken this as a promise, and they were told that if they homeschooled their kids, they were guaranteed to get their child into heaven. I'm not kidding. I I, I know of a woman I was speaking with, and I was astonished because none of her children are following Jesus. Something was off. And I know of many godly parents whose children have rebelled. But it's a general truth. But I've seen some people that they, they take it as a promise, and I know one man who is living in complete rebellion to God, hates God, and yet he tells his family that I... Um, I was trained to follow Jesus, and I'm going to come back right before I die. That's not what this means. This is not what this means. It's a general truth. So we have to understand genre and general truth. Next, we have to understand culture and context. Culture and context. We have to understand the culture around the passage and what it meant to the original audience. And we have to understand each proverbs in its own proverb in its own context. While most proverbs are to be read individually, singularly as one verse, some are to be united to greater swaths of verses around it. For example, uh, how many of, uh, I mean, I'm not going to, how many of you have a life verse? Do you have a life verse? Okay, I have one. Proverbs verse 30, verse 2. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 2. Do you know what it is? Proverbs chapter 30, verse 2, my life verse. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. That's my life verse right there. <laughs> See, it's, but we have to understand it in the greater context. If you just take it by itself, it sounds funny. But it, when you unite it to the greater context, it becomes more clear. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I have knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found to be a liar. See, when you take it in a greater context, it's saying that by myself, in my natural man, I have not the understanding of God unless God has revealed himself through his word. It's, it's about his word. So we have to understand the greater context. It's pointing us to his word that we could know nothing truly of God without the revelation of his word. It's the word of God, showing the power of the word of God and the danger of taking away from God's word. It's to apply the word of God to our life. Also, if we're to really apply this and, and, and really understand how to interpret it, it requires understanding that Proverbs offers skillful living in everyday situations. Skillful living in everyday situations. How to live in an interact. For example, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4 through 5. 
I remember writing on this passage some time ago, and I, I came upon this passage, and I, I read the first one, and then I read the next verse after it, and I thought they contradicted one another. In verse 4 it says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be him like yourself. Sounds good. Don't answer a fool. Someone who has turned their back on God, who's speaking foolishly, doesn't have experience. Don't answer a fool according to his foolishness, lest you be an idiot yourself. But look at verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So wait a minute. I'm not to answer, and then I am to answer. Which is it? Well, it's both. It's referring to different life situations. And you can see this in the life of Christ. There are times when Jesus is... is, uh, confronted by fools, and he keeps silent. He doesn't say anything to them, such as King Herod. Herod's like, do a miracle for me. Jesus says nothing. But then there are other times when Jesus answers a fool according to his folly, just like the woman caught in the act of adultery, and they brought her before Jesus because they wanted him to say that she could be stoned. They were looking to find fault in him. That if he relaxed the law, then he would be guilty of not obeying the law because the law required a person who was caught in the act of adultery to be stoned. And so if he, he advocates it, then he could be seen as a brute. But if he doesn't advocate it, then he's weak. So what does Jesus do? Let he who has no sin cast the first stone. So that you see that he's answering then these fools because they're trying to trap him according to their folly, so that they may not be wise in their own eyes. So there are times where he's silent, he holds his tongue, and there's other times that he speaks. It's learning to read the situation that you're in. Have you ever had somebody say something dumb to you? How did you respond? Did you say something right back? Or did you think of something when you walked out of the room that was so good you wish you could have said it? I think most of us are that way. So it's learning to read and understand that this God is giving us a skillful living in, in various life situations. Now, if we're to truly interpret and understand this book, we have to understand that it, the Savior is at its source. The Savior is at its source. Jesus is the divine author. The Word of God comes through him. I mean, he is the Word, the personification of the Word, but he is also the author. And we know that he is also the very wisdom of God. Colossians 2, verse 1 through 3 says this, and you don't have to turn there if you, unless you want to. Colossians 2, it's in the New Testament. Paul is writing to the church of Colossae and says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be, be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of it points to him. All of it points to him because it shows the the fullness of life and how life is to be lived out in him. He is our example. He is our high priest. He is our, our firstborn brother. He is our savior. He is our Lord. He is our prince. He is our king. He is our God. And he gives us and shows us how we are to truly live. And all of the, this wisdom that we see in Proverbs points and shows the reality of it lived out in him. In him. Now, all of wisdom originates with him and points back to him. But as I mentioned before, my goal is not to give you all mere information as we look into these Proverbs, but to help in life transformation. And for that to happen, it requires us applying the truths 
in this book. I'm going to go through these rather quickly. And uh, to apply these, the truths in this book, we're going to be challenged. And I want to just address some of the topics that are going to be seen in this book that we're going to be um, drawing out in the next few, uh, several weeks and uh, few months. First of all, we're going to be challenged to be watching our words, watching our words, knowing when we are to speak, when we are to be silent. What, I mean, think about yourself. How well do you govern your tongue? Do you slander and gossip about others? What do you do? Do you complain and try to get everybody on your side and present truth in such a way, or present information in such a way to get them on your side that they can commiserate with you? What do you do? Do you have control of your tongue? Or how about this? I mean, we're going to be challenged to lose our laziness. Proverbs talks a great deal about industry, work, and its benefits and warns us time and time again to lose our laziness. It warns us of what will happen when we are lazy. It also shows us about the excuses commonly employed for laziness and what is the cure for laziness is. Next, it will challenge us to be growing in our giving, growing in our giving to the furtherance of God's kingdom. That it will show us the, the reality that all of what we have comes from God. I'll tell you right now that we're going to be, if you have a love for money, this is going to be a very hard series for you because the Bible talks a great deal about money and business. Especially, for, I mean, Proverbs especially speaks a lot about that because it will challenge all of us to recognize our responsibility as believers in Christ to give our money for God's use and His glory. It'll also challenge us to make sure that we are finding real friends. Finding real friends. You have a friend request. And, and talk about how to be a real friend and how not to talk about other people and how to, to govern our tongue, but how we are to speak and confront in love, which is the hardest thing to do, to confront in love. We had a, a, a man here yesterday coming, uh, a man and a woman came for financial help, which we often do, and we do love to help people in the community as much as we can. And um, th- I knew that uh, they needed some rent money. So I said, well, I uh, can't guarantee anything for you right now, but um, I'd like to talk to your landlord or this place where you're staying. Actually, it was a motel, and I talked to the woman in charge. So I talked to her, and I said, how much does so-and-so owe? They gave me the amount of money, and I said, I have to ask you a question. Is this something that is frequent with this couple? And they said, all the time. I said, how many different churches and groups have helped? And they said, it's too many to count. They go around to different churches and ask for financial help all the time. So I sat back down with this man, and I said, uh, I'll help on one condition, that this will stop, and we will help you get out of this situation that you're in. Because really, this is a Band-Aid that's going, going to last temporarily. Yes, we'll be able to pay, and you can stay in this, this motel for another day or two, but what I'm offering you is an opportunity to get out of this. He goes, so you're not going to help us? I said, no, I'm helping you, but the ball is in your court. We will help you get out of this situation so you don't keep doing it again and again and again. And then it suddenly didn't want help anymore. See, and I said, you know what? I'm here to tell you that I love you. And I, because I love you, I don't want you to stay in the situation that you're in. I want to help you get out of that situation. And that's true, real help. A friend loves at all times. A friend that cares enough to tell them the truth because they don't want them to stay in ignorance. It's like this, okay? Here's an example for you in everyday situation. 
You're talking to your friend, they show up at church, and their zipper is down. Do you tell them? Or if something is not right on their garment or something like that, do you tell them? I hope so. Cause, and I hope you tell me. Many of you already have. Because <laughs> you don't mean to look like an idiot. I do that enough on my own by myself. I don't need any more help. But that's the kind of thing we're talking about. You care enough to talk to them. Not rebuke. I mean, I mean, you might need to rebuke, but it's coming alongside and say, I care for you, and this is what I see. Help me out. Is this right? Ask questions first before you accuse, and, and make sure that you have your information correct, because your perception could be wrong. But it's finding real friends. Next, Proverbs challenges us to be cultivating contentment. See, the world has an idea of what contentment is, and the Bible and God, the, the Word of God has an, an, an ideal of contentment and truth and how we are to live in it. And we are at war with that. It, we're being bombarded all the time, and we have to go back to God's Word time and time again to see how we are to live, how we are to find true satisfaction, because the world is trying to sell us satisfaction all the time whether it's the newest phone or newest technology or weight loss or uh, fitness plans or whatever it might be. And it's trying to say, this is what's going to make you content. And the Word of God says, that's not, contentment's not found in things. It's found in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And you have to work to keep and cultivate that contentment. It will also challenge us to be pursuing biblical parenting. Now, much of our parenting isn't biblical. It's what we had modeled unto us. I've noticed that with myself. I have a tendency to, to repeat what I had done to me. You know that moment when you realize you became your parent? You ever had that? I, I was laughing the other day. We had a threes company, and uh, um, uh, Preston Halley was there, and his son um, was doing something, and he goes, don't make me come over there. And he, he, got, he figured out, he goes, I'm, I become my dad. When did that happen? You know, we have these things that we need to learn. How to, to parent biblically, which means how to love our children, how to discipline our children, how to teach our children, making sure we don't exasperate our children. We need to be pursuing biblical parenting. The scripture in Proverbs especially will also challenge us to be firming up our finances. Not just growing in our giving, but firming up our finances. Knowing what deals to make and what ne- deals not to make. The Bible talks about that. The Bible talks a great deal about loans. I mean, I think many of us understand the power of debt and loans. I mean, I, I've seen couples that uh, were trying to have what everybody else had, and they paid a lot for it, and then their marriage just started to deteriorate. I had a dear, dear, it's really hard for me, dear couple, friend of ours that I worked with in ministry that I just heard this last week got a divorce. It broke my heart, and I found out part of the reason why was their finances. They'd accumulated a lot of debt. He had to work, spent a lot of time away from his family, trying to pay that off, caused a lot more stress on their marriage, and next thing you know, it ended. I mean, a financial stress can cause a great deal of trouble, so we need to follow the Bible's admonitions, not our friend's admonitions about money. I know that I have listened to my friends, and it's got me into trouble rather than what God says about it. What does God say about debt and money and how we spend our money? Proverbs also challenges us to be picking the right partner. Picking the right partner. I often tell dating couples that they should date for a year or a year and a half. Why? Because, you're, because we're dumb. <laughs> we're dumb. We have a tendency to see the best in that person 
and we're so enamored by the fact that they love, that they're paying attention to us, that we overlook many of their major fault areas. And I see couples all the time get married, and then they're like, ah, that's really bad. I had no idea, because you went in blind. Blind. Now, the Bible's going to talk about that, and the dangers of, of choosing the wrong partner. And it'll also talk about the dangers of adultery, and talk about sexual immorality. And the Bible is all-inclusive, man. It is everything that we deal with and we struggle with. It's for us, especially Proverbs. It really draws this out and says, this is what's going to happen if you go do this. And not in a way of like, not in a way, such a way or manner to, to really be high-handed, but to show you these are the reality of consequences that will come if you reject God. And it's a warning to us that we might apply it for our life. Now, I want to get to my, I'm going to fly through this last point because I know we're, we're pretty much out of time. These are just few, a, few of the, a few of the subjects we'll be looking at, but before we get to them, we have to make up our, our mind to take advantage of this wonderful training. How do we take advantage of this book that is before us and as we draw it out in the next several weeks and few months? Well, first of all, we have to trust in its validity. It requires us trusting in its validity that it is the expert on what it's talking about. It is the authority. We have, how many of you have a guy for something? Like, I got a mechanic, I got a guy. And you trust that person about your mechanic need. Or you know of a teenager, you say, he can fix my computer, I trust him with that. Or you have someone that can, uh, a plumber, I got a person that knows that. We all have experts that we look to that understand about those subjects. Now the Bible is saying about all the moral choices we make that it is the authority, the expert. Will you trust that or will you trust someone else? Who are you going to trust? Trusting in its validity. Secondly, if we need wisdom, then we must be asking for it constantly. Asking for it constantly. We read about this in James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. That God will give it to you. How many of you are facing a situation, or we're facing a situation right now that we need wisdom for? Maybe it's a financial situation. Maybe it's something that's in your marriage. Maybe it's a medical thing that you're dealing with. Maybe it's something in a friendship or with your children. Or maybe it's a business decision or a career change. We all need wisdom or a conflict that is developed. How do we handle it? How do we say? How do we address it? We need God's wisdom for that. And if we ask, he is guaranteed to give it to us. But it means asking for it repeatedly. It's a present imperative to keep doing it. To keep asking for it again and again. I mean, we're like, like little kids that want popsicles on a hot day. We keep asking until we get it. We need to ask for it again and again and again. I'm reminded of uh, Tony Evans where he said, if a student is too lazy to study, they shouldn't complain when they receive an F on a test. If a Christian is too lazy to find out what God says about a subject, he shouldn't be surprised when he lacks the understanding he needs to handle situations in his life. Very true. Lastly, we must make sure that we are living it out daily. Remember, wisdom is living out others' experiences. It is applying the word of God to various life situations. It's living God smart. The man that I sat down with the other day, he didn't want to live it out. He just wanted me to give a quick fix. He didn't want to make a change. God is offering us change. 
Sometimes he offers deliverance. In, in certain instances, he gives it completely. But there are other times that he offers us to take up our cross and die daily. He doesn't deliver everyone in the same manner. But he does offer all of us the opportunity to die daily, to live and follow him daily, to be wise in his eyes. Not so much street smart, no much, not so much academic or book smart, but God smart. So that's the question before us right now. How God smart are we? How God smart are you? What are you trusting in? What are you following and using to influence your decisions and how you raise your children and how you choose your mate or how you live out your marriage or how you spend your money or how you conduct your business? What is your authority? What type of smart would someone characterize you? Would they say book smart, street smart, or God smart? Let's live God smart for God's glory, and he will give us peace and joy and the overflowing in the knowledge of him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are reminded that you have given your word for our benefit and that all of your word points to the truth and reality of Jesus Christ, that he came to die to give us life and that we might repent of our sins and put our trust in him and live according to your word and truly live out and personify the wisdom and truth of God that has been presented to us. Lord, we pray that we might be wise. Shake loose the, the loose thoughts that we have in our mind that are not anchored and are stuck to our mind through the reality of your word. Help us to uh, wash ourselves and remove anything that, that is not based and rooted in the truth of your word. Convict us of sin, draw us close to you, and help us live out the truths of this wor your word that uh, we might increase in joy, but your name above all might receive great glory and people might see Christ in us and be drawn accordingly, that they too might come to the saving knowledge of who you are and live out the reality of that truth. So Lord, please bless us, use us, Convict us and draw us near and open this fabulous book to us as we study in the next few weeks as your spirit guides us into all truth that we might be sanctified by truth because your word is truth and changes lives. May we submit ourselves to your word, placing ourselves on the surgery table, asking you to cut out the, unbelieving, the unbelief, the unbelieving cancer in our lives that we might live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.